Um, it is great to be with you. And again, I know I say I sound like a broken record, but just thoroughly enjoy the worship together. I mean, it's just, it's, it, isn't it a blessing? Just man alive. It's just, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And I just want to thank the team for it. It's, it's a great blessing to my heart. Do you ever, um, do you ever feel, feel out of control? I mean, like, you're just a pawn in the hands of somebody else. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your neighborhood, perhaps with your family. Kind of this sense of just being out of control. One of the things I don't want to convey to you as we've been looking at the cross, because, you know, think about it. Matthew told us at the cross, we find the agony of victory. And you get some sense of, and Luke tells us about Jesus being generous and loving when he's in the midst of injustice. And you kind of get this sense sometimes, well, are you saying then that obviously Jesus was going to go to the cross, but once the trial started, he was just a pawn. You know, Pilate was in control. The religious leaders are in control. When you come to the Gospel of John, John wants you to know who's in control. Not not leading up to the crucifixion. Clear through the crucifixion. And he's going to make it very, very, very clear to us in John chapter 19. So if you'll turn over there, I want you to notice what John does. Once again, when you look at the cross... It's perspective from Matthew and Luke's account. And now, John, by the time we finish, you have this beautiful collage in which we learn all kinds of things about the cross and what Jesus is doing. So the question is, who's in control? Well, I mean, at one level, wouldn't you say Pilate's in control? Look at chapter 19 and verse 16. So he then delivered him to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Now, we've read that in the other accounts and you can read this particular point and say, well, the guy that's in control clearly is is Pilate. I mean, you know. He delivered him over. He said, crucify him, stick him on that cross. So it's Pilate. Or, or is it? For just a second, go back, if you would, to verses 10 and 11 of John chapter 19. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? I am in control. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered, you have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivers me up to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you think you're in control? You have no authority apart from what God allows you to do. And one of the things we know historically, when you read some of the other accounts about Pilate, the Jewish Jews that wrote about Pilate did not like Pilate. Josephus talks about him and Philo and these guys. 
and they're really down on him. And as you reconstruct some of the things that are going on, at least twice, Pilate has done some really foolish things with the Jews. Massacred Jews because he didn't like what they were doing. And every time they ran back to Caesar. And in some sense, he, this guy's got two strikes against him with Caesar. And so even as the ruler, he's thinking, I can kind of do whatever I want. And when the Jews pull up, they said, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. You know what that, that's code for? We're going to go back and tell, talk to him again. And Pilate, who acts like he's in control, is manipulated and pressured by the religious leaders. And he says, fine, take him and crucify him. So Pilate's not in control, is he? Oh, he would say he is. But he really isn't. Well, perhaps the religious leaders are in control. Notice um, this interesting passage in, in verses 19 to 22. Oh, and you know the other thing I didn't tell you, I don't know if you noticed this in verse 17, where it says, Jesus bore the cross. Now, if you remember from Luke and Matthew's account, Jesus didn't bear the cross all the way to the Golgotha, did he? Remember, Simon helped him out. But John is not denying that. John is just saying at the beginning, when Jesus Christ was going to the cross at the beginning, he willingly submitted to the Father. He was willing to bear the cross. He's not making a statement about what happens with Simon later. That's not the point. It's his submission to the Father that's quite clear here. Anyway, look what happens in verses 19 to 22. This is really interesting. I, I love it for a whole bunch of reasons. Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And we heard that from the other accounts. That's not at all unusual. But here's what's different. Look at what it says. Therefore, this inscription, many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. So all the Jews walking by doesn't matter if you're Roman, Jewish, doesn't matter. You can walk by. It's in all three languages. Everybody can read it and say, King of the Jews. Well, this has the religious leaders upset. Now, they've already manipulated Pilate. Okay, look at what they do here. Verse 21. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather he said, I am the King of the Jews. Like, can we just change that placard there? Not, not that he is the king of the Jews, but that he said he was the king of the Jews. Come on, let's just change this. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Which is a nice way of saying, no. Now, I want you to think about it. This is all political intrigue. He's already been manipulated by them. They come back to him and say, we don't like the fact that everybody's reading that. Because it sounds like it might be true. Uh, and can you do something about that? And, and because he loves the Lord, no. Because he's trying to get one back on them, yes. He says, no, I'm not going to change it. And he must be thinking, I do have some control. And so here is a man who is antagonistic to the religious leaders, who are antagonistic to Jesus, and all the political intrigue. And guess what happens at the end of the day? Everybody that walks by sees the truth. He's king of the Jews. So they're manipulating and doing all their kind of deal and their thing. And God is saying, 
When people walk by, that's reality. He is the king of the Jews. So who's in control? Religious leaders? No. Pilate? Um, no. Let's keep reading. Maybe it's the soldiers. Maybe the soldiers are in control. Look at verse 23 and 24. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garment, made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So there's four soldiers. They've divvied up the outer garment, but the problem is this inner tunic. They've said, therefore, one to another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide who, whose it shall be. They're just being smart soldiers, right? But they're actually fulfilling Scripture. Notice what the text goes on to say. That the Scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers are doing whatever they want. Well, that's true at one level. And they're in full control. That's not true either. Because as they're acting out what soldiers do, they're merely fulfilling the Scriptures, folks. God is accomplishing His purposes through callous soldiers, through antagonistic religious leaders, and through a pilot who, through a religious leader, I'm sorry, a political leader, who is nothing but a politician when 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 it's all said and done. None of them were ultimately in control, folks. Notice, then, what the text says here in verse 25. Therefore, on the one hand, the soldiers were doing these things, unbeknownst to them, under the hand of a sovereign God, they were fulfilling Scripture. But on the other hand, there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, the writer of this epistle, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own own house. Think about this, folks. I don't know if you remember, but Jesus' first encounter with his mom came way back in John chapter 2 at the marriage of Cana. Remember that? Come together for this meal, and man, they run out of wine. Now he's looking around. She said, Jesus, could you like do one of your miracle things? He hadn't done a miracle yet, had he? But could you, could you do one? And Jesus looks back at her and says, Mother, ma'am, my hour has not yet come. And then he goes and does it anyway, right? But what he was telling her is, look, there's a higher priority than you. And it is the hour that God has called me to. And by the time you get to John chapter 12, Jesus says, my hour is here. Father, it's going to be hard, but I'm willing to do it. And a voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved son. That's what John tells us. 
And so the first priority was always the hour. It was the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But you know what I love about this? In that first encounter, he had to remind his mom of what's most important. And in this last encounter of his life, as he was fulfilling his purposes, he didn't forget his mom. He was the oldest son, wasn't he? And there he's paying for the sins of the world. And here is Jesus in full control of everything. And as he's there on the cross, he says, John, take care of mother. Because this is what's most important my hour, but she's still my mother. And he takes care of that whole matter. Isn't that amazing? Full control. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus? John's account. I love John's account. They all come up and they say, where is Jesus? And he says, it's me. And like dominoes, they, blah, 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 blah. they all fall down. You know, soldiers, they get back up again. And then the Bible says, Jesus says, look, I'm the one. Let these other guys go free that the scripture might be fulfilled. And you see, from that point on, the very point where you think everything's out of control for Jesus, he is in control at every point. He and his father. And John does not want you to miss this. It wasn't like at that point, man, victim from that point on. No way. No way. Notice what the text goes on to say. Just to reinforce this for us again. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, it's all been fulfilled. Every domino has fallen as it should. It's all been accomplished, finished. In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they, they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Once again, this is a stimulant. It didn't taste very good, so it wasn't an act of love. They were just, they heard him say, I'm thirsty, and kind of an in-your-face, they put something in there that would be sour, but be a, would be a stimulant, would make you kind of go like this, and they thought that would be kind of funny. Here's the question. And scholars go two ways on this one, just, just so you know. This text, Jesus said, it says, I am thirsty. Jesus said it so that the scripture might be fulfilled. It means either one of two things, folks. It is either referring back to Psalm 22, when you have the psalmist saying, I'm thirsty. Or, if you go to one of the other psalms, Psalm 69, what you find there is that, again, you find the anointed one in, in that psalm being persecuted. And he says, even in the midst of my persecution, people that are against me offer me gall as kind of an in-your-face attack. But I'm willing to accept it. So it either means one or the other. I think it's the second rather than the first. So Jesus is on the cross and he says, I am thirsty because he was truly thirsty. And when the soldiers respond the way they respond, again, you know what they're doing? They're merely fulfilling the scripture. Because they're showing how they're mistreating the anointed one. So all the way through. And so he gets, he gets that. And then look at what this verse says. This is just, to me, this is unbelievable. Look at this. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, it should like be a stimulant to keep you going for a little bit. What does he say? It is finished. Or we could say it is accomplished. It's the same word from verse 28. It's accomplished. And Jesus is saying, Father, 
everything has been done. Scripture is totally fulfilled. Payment has been made. It is finished. And John does not say it like, if you go back and read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, they say, and Jesus died. That's not what John says. What does John say? Jesus gives up His Spirit. You know, it's the same word that's used back in, in verse 16 when it says, Pilate delivered Jesus to them. You know what this is saying? You get to the very end of verse 30, and Jesus, when He's all said and done, says, I now of Myself will deliver up my life at this point. I'm not just like dying as a victim. I'm choosing to give it up. And he gave of his spirit and he died. He was in full control, folks. There is nothing at any point. Now, in no way does that take away culpability and responsibility for what the people did. Not at all. But Christ was never a pawn in his crucifixion. He was in full control at every point. And when he was ready to die, as he said back in John chapter 10, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own because I love people. And when, he had, when everything was accomplished, he chose to die. Well, that's pretty good. And you're like, wow, he's, he's in control. I, I think I'm getting it, Doug. Now, at this point, when he dies, things are out of control, right? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> not at all, is what I should say. Notice in verse 31 what happens here. We're going to go right through the rest of the chapter here. We're only about 10 verses away. But I want you to see, this is, John will not let us miss the point, folks, of the control of Jesus Christ through the entire process. Look at what happens in verse 31. Jesus is dead. And still, Scripture is going to be fulfilled. Look at what happens. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, but this was Friday. And look, they only got a couple hours. It's 3 o'clock. And by sunset, Sabbath begins. So we got to get those bodies off the cross and throw them into some criminal's grave or something quick. I mean, that's how they're thinking, right? Because you know what? You don't want to dishonor God, do you? What hypocrisy. Anyway, that's a whole other point. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Because remember we said before, if you break somebody's legs on the cross, guess what? They can't pull themselves up. And they'll suffocate. And that's, that's what happens. So, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And I'm not a physician, but the soldiers knew exactly what that meant. He was dead. That's the point. And John the writer just tells you what happens. He says, look, i got to comment on this one too. He, just, he can't contain himself. Look at what he says in verse 35 to 37. He who has seen has borne witness. John says, look, I was there. And his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture saying, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That verse, not a bone of him will be broken, could refer to either or perhaps both the fact that the Passover lamb, the bones were never to be broken. We learn about that back in Numbers. Or there is another passage about the righteous anointed one in the Psalms whose bones are not broken. It could be either one. It could be both. I don't know. You know what I do know? Those guys were just doing their job. They came by and said, let's break his legs. Uh, are you kidding me? He's dead already? How did he die so quick? He chose to. Well, let's make sure. And in not breaking their le- his legs, they were fulfilling Scripture. And in piercing him, it takes us back to the book of Zechariah, where God himself says figuratively, my people have pierced me. Not literally, but figuratively. But in the cross, it happens literally. God himself is pierced. And John says, look, I was there. I saw the whole thing. You can trust what I'm telling you. God is still fulfilling Scripture, and Christ is dead. Verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. You know, I, I, I'm amazed by Joseph of Arimathea. In the darkest moment, I mean, from his perspective, did he know Jesus was going to resurrect from the grave after this? No. And yet, there was something in that moment. Here's a man who is part of the Sanhedrin. And when he hears that Jesus has died, he's a disciple, but he's a secret one. He's afraid. But in this moment, he says, I don't care. And he doesn't even know about the resurrection, folks. He says, I I don't care. I don't care what they say about me. He goes to Pilate and says, let me take his body and and, and care for it. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. He's not the only one, is he? Only John records for us also these words about Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? He's a guy that kind of slipped up, talked to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night, you know? And you kind of get that sense coming out, John chapter 3. I don't know whatever happened with Nicodemus. He pops up again a little bit later in John's gospel when he confronts some of the Sanhedrin and says, well, you know, maybe there is something. Hey, what, are you a Galilean too? Well, he kind of backs off, you know. But in John chapter 19, like Joseph of Arimathea, he comes out of the shadows and he seeks to honor the Lord who has died. Not even knowing that he's going to resurrect. Look at what it says. And Nicodemus came also, verse 39, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Now, my text says about 100 pounds in weight. It's probably more like 65 to 75 pounds in weight. There's some debate how to transfer it over. It's a lot. That's the point. And they took the body of Jesus Bounded in the linen wrappings with spices, as, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. In which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, 
on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, folks, I want you to think about this. This is really amazing. Think about it. They are out of love for Jesus, burying him. And they know they don't have much time. They got to wrap him and get those spices on really quick. And they need a place to bury him. Someone says, hey, and, and Joseph says, well, I got, a, I got a tomb over there. And no one's ever laid on, never been in that before. Let's just use that. It's nearby. We don't have much time. I'm happy to do that. And that's what they did. But think about this. What if Jesus would have been thrown into just a criminal grave with a bunch of other criminals and bones and everything else? Down through the centuries, liberals would have said, how do you know it's Jesus? There's all kinds of corpses in there. Here, they're pressured to do something quickly, and they do something which would validate the resurrection. Because nobody had ever laid there before. Jesus was the first. And they're also fulfilling Isaiah 53, where the Bible says, they will appoint a place to him with criminals, but he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, are they thinking about any of that? No! They're loving Jesus and trying to get his body into a tomb before 6 o'clock. That's it. That's it. And even after he has died, soldiers and followers of Christ are merely fulfilling his will. So who's in control? I mean, by the time you get done reading John's account, you say, man, God's God at all. God is not behind every act, is he? In the sense that he does it. He allows sinners to do sinful things. But God is over every act. Do you see the difference? He's never responsible for, for that kind of sinful activity. But he's over it in such a way that he will still accomplish his purposes through it. And I was thinking about this text. This text is all about God's sovereign control in the crucifixion. I mean, you can't miss it. Here's a sovereign God that will use antagonists, people who are indifferent, people who are selfish, and people who love him. And he'll accomplish his purposes. And he'll do it in such a way that when you and I look at it, we should have two responses. Number one, I believe. I mean, God is in full control and everything he said is going to happen, happened. How can I do anything but not submit to this God? I believe. And I would say something else. Secondly, if you are a believer, God's going to do his work in this world. He's going to use me one way or the other. I would certainly love to be used as a committed follower. Not as somebody who is antagonistic or indifferent or just kind of doing their own thing. God is God. And if Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea can come out of the shadows and not even understand the difference, not even understand the resurrection, what about Doug Finkbeiner? I, I know where the whole thing's going. You do too. And to be part of God's sovereign work in this world where we just say, God, I love you. Here I am. Use me however, please. Yeah. What other response can we have? when you finish reading what John says about the crucifixion. Because we sang in that song, lead me to the cross.
And when you come to the cross, Matthew tells us, I see the agony of victory. Luke tells us, I see dependence and generosity in the face of injustice. And John tells us, I see the sovereign control of God. Go forth as my people, God would say, and continue to be my people because the cross has changed everything. And you are part of what God is doing until his son comes back. Isn't that great? That's a great package. Help us to be people of the cross. Let's pray.